You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. Lee Atwater, you're probably not old enough to know that name. But I am, and I was thinking about Atwater all weekend. Lee Atwater was a Republican strategist. He worked for Ronald Reagan and the first President George Bush. And for, I don't know, a dozen years or more, he was the chairman of the Republican National Committee. So I am not a fan of Lee Atwater's, needless to say. But I did appreciate Atwater's bluntness and his honesty in an interview he gave to a political scientist named Alexander Lamas, who was writing a book about racism and American politics. It was an interview that was supposed to remain forever anonymous. It was supposed to be on background, not quoted or attributed to Atwater. But it leaked. Leaks, they're not a new thing. They're a thing that have been going on forever. Anyway, here's what Atwater, the man who ran the GOP for a very long time, the man who helped elect Ronald fucking Reagan, had to say about the Southern strategy, the GOP's appeal to racist white Southerners who abandoned the Democratic Party in droves after the civil rights legislation of the 1960s signed into law by a Democratic president. Atwater, you start out in 1954 by saying N-word, N-word, N-word. Atwater didn't say N-word in the interview. I'm going to say N-word here as I quote him. By 1968, you can't say N-word anymore. That hurts you. Backfires. So you start saying stuff like forced busing, states' rights, and all that stuff. You're getting so abstract now in the 80s, you're talking about cutting taxes and all these things you're talking about are totally economic things, and a byproduct of them is that blacks get hurt worse than whites. You follow me? Because obviously sitting around saying we want to cut this is much more abstract than even the busing thing and a hell of a lot more abstract than N-word, N-word. Atwater gave that interview in 1981 when he was working in Reagan's White House, crafting those racist abstractions, winning the votes of white people by advancing economic policies designed to do maximum damage to black people. Now, some of these policies also hurt white people, too. White people suffer when social welfare programs are gutted. White people get more in food stamps than anybody else. But some white people are content to suffer, so long as they're convinced black people are suffering more. Anyway, for 50 years, the GOP dealt in these abstractions, these racist dog whistles since 1968, since the invention by Richard Nixon of the Southern Strategy. And in the process, over the decades, their base became older, whiter, and hatier. All along the way, moderate Republicans, Rockefeller Republicans, never that great to begin with. They're all extinct now. Then along comes Donald Trump. Trump doesn't traffic in abstractions. I don't think Donald Trump is capable of abstract thought. He says and does racist things. And this offended the GOP establishment, not because they're offended by racism or racist, but because Trump wasn't playing by the rules. He wasn't using the code. He wasn't sticking to the abstractions. Saturday Night Live. Way back last year, feels like three lifetimes ago, nailed it in a sketch shortly before Trump won the primary. Here's Jason Sudeikis as Mitt Romney. Now, Governor, why have you decided to speak out against Donald Trump? Well, Jake, for the last nine months, I've sat down and watched Donald Trump say something every day that was either racist or sexist. And we in the GOP, the party of the great Ronald Reagan, we do not say racist and sexist things. 
We imply them. <laughs> Subtly over decades and decades of policy. Their problem with Donald Trump, back during the primary, doesn't imply, doesn't use code, doesn't deal in obstructions. And Donald Trump drove that home again this weekend, talking to an all-white crowd at a rally in Alabama. Trump accused those people of disrespecting our great national anthem. Trump called on NFL team owners to fire players who exercise their constitutional right to peacefully protest and called those people, again, those people, sons of bitches. Those people. Football players, African-American football players, inspired by SF 49ers quarterback Colin Kaepernick, who've been taking a knee during our great national anthem to protest police brutality. Sons of bitches, those people, says our president. A quick aside, our great national anthem has a second verse that celebrates the deaths of slaves who were fighting for their freedom in the War of 1812. It's true. Google it. So our national anthem isn't really that great. After we pull down the last Confederate monument, let's repeal and replace our national anthem. Anyway, I was really happy to see so many football players in so many stadiums this weekend take a knee, entire teams, in response to Trump's racist attacks on Sunday. I was proud to see the entire football team at Seattle's own Garfield High School take a knee, and the Seattle Seahawks, proud of you guys for staying in your locker room during the national anthem. It was nice to see so much unity. Even people who disagree with the taking of the knee thing, and I disagree with people who disagree with the taking of the knee thing, supported the pushback against Trump's racist and anti-constitutional, anti-First Amendment demagoguery. But I got I to gotta zoom out for just a second because this has been going on. We've been talking about this Donald Trump asshole for two years, longer than that, but to talking about Donald Trump and thinking about Donald Trump. That used to be opt-in if you didn't watch The Fucking Apprentice, if you didn't follow Trump's bizarre career. You didn't have to think or talk about it much, but now we're all thinking and talking about him all the fucking time. And the journalist Seth Abramson really kind of nailed it this weekend in response to not just Trump's comments about uh, those people taking a knee, disrespecting our great national anthem, not just that newest iteration of Trump's fucking racist, demagogish assholery, but just zoomed out and, and took a look at what Trump is doing to our psyches as individuals and really our collective national psyche. And I'm going to read a little bit of his tweet storm. He wanted people to see the whole thing. I retweeted it. If you follow me on Twitter, you would have seen it. If you didn't, if you missed it, go look up Seth Abramson on Twitter and read this whole thing because it really fucking captures it. I'm just going to read a little bit of it. Have you noticed a change in your mood since January? I mean a change you can't seem to escape. Anxiety, anger, fear, confusion, doubt. The most ubiquitous man in your nation is trying to poison you daily because it gives him power and no one is stopping him from doing it. I'm not using hyperbole. You are under attack, a deliberate, unprovoked, systemic, and yes, evil attack, and it's working. We're losing. You think he's attacking North Korea in his suites? No, he's trying to terrorize you. The NFL? You. Segments of America? No. All of us. Every institution we like or trust, he's undermined. The media, government, unions, hell, even the NFL. Veterans, too, when he feels like it. He's enabled by the GOP, but he is no Republican. He wants to destroy any politics or politician whose world he's not at the center of. He's a malignant narcissist, and only his ambition to spread his toxicity nationwide in whichever way feeds his perverse pathology. If you're a Trump voter, by all means, laugh it up. You'll be caught in wars, recessions, and international collapse like the rest of us. I could go on. I could continue to read Seth's brilliant Twitter rant from this weekend. I would encourage you to go read the rest of it. We have some sex and relationship questions to get to here today. But I just got to say, there is only one way 
to cure what ails us. We have to confront the GOP about its complicity in racism, stretching back to the 1950s, 1968, the fucking Southern strategy, Lee Atwater, code, abstractions, dog whistles. And we have to impeach this motherfucker already. That's what we have to do. The only way to save our country is to cut this cancer out of our body politic. And the cancer is Trump. And the cancer is the Southern strategy. Trump is not an aberration. Trump is the culmination of everything the GOP has been saying and doing for a half a fucking century. And the bill has come due. And we are all paying it. And I'm pissed. Also today, proud. Proud of all the football players. Not a football fan. Don't watch a lot of football games. But proud of all the football players who took a stand by taking a knee this weekend. And we're all going to have to continue to stand up to this and fight it and not succumb to the anxiety, paranoia, rage, and fear that Trump is daily trying to stoke and provoke. So fuck the president. Not my president. Not your president. Let's talk about sex and relationships. But let's stay in the fight and let's keep taking a stand. And when and where necessary taken a knee to. Hey, Dan. I am in my late 20s living on the West Coast of the United States, and I am a cisgendered straight female. My question for you is basically surrounding the sugar baby, sugar daddy lifestyle. My dilemma is that I am a very motivated girl like I want to I eventually want to be financially stable but right now the career path that I'm going towards in the entertainment industry means that you know money is tight um, I do have a boyfriend that I've I've recently started dating but things have gotten very serious very fast and I would like to pursue something more serious with him and basically my question is in a long way around it is that is it okay for me to be a sugar baby and decide to not tell my boyfriend? The way I see it is, is that it's, it's a job. It's something that I'm going to do to make money. And I don't want to stress him out with it. He's the kind of guy, and I, I don't think I would want to date someone who's okay with their girlfriend being a sugar baby. I know that you've said in the past that, you know, there are some things that you can just keep secret to your boyfriend that, you know, you don't need to be open and honest about everything. And I want to do this so I can protect him. It's not going to be forever. But I, is it okay if I don't tell my boyfriend about being a sugar baby? I guess it's important for me to say that if, if I do decide to sleep with the sugar daddy, you know, I may end up doing that. I may not. But I just, either way, to me, it's a business transaction. I'd just love to know your thoughts on this. So you want to be a sugar baby and you have a boyfriend and you could tell him, but you don't want to date someone. You wouldn't want to have a boyfriend who is okay with you being a sugar baby. That's a little bizarre. That's a little hypocritical. I, I don't quite understand your rationale there or what you're thinking. Tried to call you back. Couldn't get you. So I'm just going to have to vamp here. But if I were sitting with you, if we were together, if we were having a drink at a bar, I would ask you to really think about what that says or what that means or, or, or what, from whence this disconnect. You want to do this particular kind of sex work, but you don't want to be with a guy romantically who would be okay with his girlfriend doing this particular kind of sex work. So there's some little part of your brain that is whore shaming you for the whoring that you're contemplating doing. And in the eyes of your beloved, you want to be the kind of person who hasn't and would never do sex work. But you are, if you do this, 
the kind of person who would do sex work. And presumably you are a good person. Maybe one of the reasons you don't want to be with somebody who would be okay with his girlfriend doing sex work is because you don't think deep down that someone who would do sex work is a good person. You want your boyfriend to think you are a good person. And you kind of are a good – well, maybe you're not so good a person actually. Maybe you're falling a little short of the good bar because your boyfriend, if you do this kind of work, I think has a right to know, particularly if it is sexual because if you allow him to assume – or you tell him explicitly that this is a sexually exclusive relationship and you are having sex with another guy who may be having sex with other women, that puts your boyfriend at some certain degree of risk and he has a right to make an informed choice about the degree of sexual risk in this relationship that he's willing to accept. So if you want to be that good person that you know yourself to be, the kind of good person who could do sex work, there's a lot of good people out there who do sex work. We've had a lot of them on this show. Then you have to be honest with your boyfriend. And then what you'll see in his eyes when he looks at you is not someone looking at someone who could never do sex work, but someone looking at someone who is honest about the sex work that they are doing, who is not a deceitful liar. And you don't want to be a deceitful liar. Really, you don't want to be a deceitful liar. You just don't want to be with somebody who doesn't know that they're with a deceitful liar. You want to actually not be a deceitful liar. Yes, I have in the past and I will in the future say that there are things that people lie to their partners about, that there are lies that you can tell. This isn't really one of them. This is a, the withholding of information I think that a lover, a boyfriend that you're serious about is entitled to. Crushing debt, entitled to that information before marriage. HIV status, entitled to that information. Your kink cards laid on the table, entitled to that information. A list of everyone you've ever slept with and all the sex acts you performed with that person, your exact number and all the details, not necessarily entitled to all that information. We have, even when we're partnered, a right to some autonomy and a right to some privacy within that relationship. But you have to ask yourself if the things you're being all autonomously private about, if that's a legitimate choice and whether you're withholding something that the other person needs to know, has a right to know, is entitled to know so they can make an informed choice about whether they want to be with you or not. So yeah, no, you can't be a good person and hold this back. And you have to find whatever wiring it is in your brain that is cool with this weird, horophobic, self-shaming hypocrisy on your part where you want to do this but you would never want to be with somebody who was okay with you doing this. What if he finds out you're doing it? What if you wind up with somebody who's absolutely positively not okay with this at all? And as things like this tend to do, it comes out. He finds out. Then what? Yeah, no. Doing sex work, you want to be with somebody who's down with their girlfriend doing sex work. And if you wouldn't date anybody who would date somebody who would do sex work, don't fucking do sex work. Hey, Dan. So I have an ex-girlfriend. And uh, we sort of are loosely friends. We reconnected on social media a while ago. And we talk every now and then. But, uh, man, it seems like she's gotten the, with a new guy before I found someone new. And so now I can't help but feeling jealous and uh, like kind of like angry. I don't know, angry. It just kind of, I don't know. I have these feelings which are silly and irrational. And I, I don't like that I have these feelings, but nonetheless, I have them. And so now I feel like I don't want to like, I don't want to see into her life via social media, you know, with her posting Snapchats with her boyfriend or the pictures on Facebook or this kind of stuff. But 
it's is it petty if i if i just unfollow her on everything like just uh, remove her from all my all my social media things like i don't i'm not i'm not doing it out of, out of hate or really a vitriol or anything i'm just doing it to protect my own um sort of i guess feelings because it just makes me feel bad when i see it and i don't want to feel bad unnecessarily so it's like it has nothing to do with her i'm i on the one hand i'm happy that she found someone new but on the other hand it doesn't make me happy to see it and i know it's silly and it's jealousy and it's like stupid basal emotions but nonetheless i have those emotions and i can't shake them so i was wondering whether or not you thought um i was just being petty and should just use it the situation as a way to grow stronger and just get over it or if it's reasonable to unfriend and get rid of someone all over social media and if so should i first reach out to her and tell her that i'm going to do it and why or just do it you're so articulate and, and you're so thoughtful about this you really kind of don't need my help i think you know what to do send her a note say i'm really happy that you found somebody else but for now just to protect my feelings i don't still have feelings for you but you know you're with somebody new and it dredges up old memories and makes me feel a little melancholy uh, i'm not with anybody else yet and just I want you to be happy, but having your happiness live streamed into my brain right now is just a little painful. It's just a little awkward. So for now, I will mute you where I can mute you and I'm going to unfollow you where I need to unfollow you. But I still think of you as a friend. I still like you and I'm really happy for you. But I need to back off a little bit, have some distance while I work on my own happiness and finding someone for myself. And I just scripted that all for you. You can transcribe that and read that out, or you can just speak from the heart. You you, you spoke so well about this this problem and and your feelings of ambiguity, and your impulse to say something first is absolutely positively the right impulse. If your ex and you have become friendly, and this is the general you, not you specifically, caller. If you become friends with your ex and reconnected with your ex, and you're just chit-chatting a little bit on social media, and they get somebody new, and they're in the besotted phase, and every picture is them with their new person, if you suddenly unfollow, if you just cut them off, they may read into that anger, resentment, a desire to get back together. Maybe all the contact up to this point when they found someone new was just you trying to weasel your way back into their pants. And if that's not true, it's just touching you in a sore spot. Don't just disappear. Say something first. Say, hey, happy for you. Uh, can't have your happiness live streamed into my head right now. So reach out every once in a while. Drop me an email. I'll drop you an email. We can stay in touch, but uh, not via Instagram, not via Facebook, not via Twitter, just for the time being. Anybody who heard you say that and reacted negatively or blew up at you or just furious because you deprived them of one follower on Instagram is no ex you want to be friends with going forward anyway. Uh, hi, Dan. I have got a question. Okay, so my wife and I, we've been married about seven years. We have uh, two daughters, a two-and-a-half-year-old and a, a one-year-old. We, we have decided, had decided, that we were not going to... Um, raise our, our children in any sort of religious tradition. Both of us came out of really toxic situations, uh, and we, we wanted there to be a, a hard line there. I talked to my parents about this close to three years ago, just as my daughter was about to be born, uh, that, that this is our hard line, and we, uh, we respect that you have your religious beliefs, but please do not put those on my children. Don't teach them about Jesus. Don't read them Bible stories. Don't 
take them to church uh, without talking to us first and making sure that we are okay with whatever the instruction is. So they've always been very respectful of it. They've always, uh, from from that point on, it was never a fight. Um, shockingly, it was never a fight. But uh, a couple weeks ago, my oldest daughter, the two-and-a-half-year-old, had spent the night over at their house and came back the next day, and as we were getting ready to eat dinner, uh, stopped us and said, we have to say prayers first. We have to say prayers first. And um, I looked at her and I said, what, what are you talking about? Where did you learn that? And she got really upset and said, oh, I, I wasn't supposed to tell. I said, okay, um, well, I'm your dad. You, you can tell me, you can tell your mom anything. We, you can always trust us. And so uh, she, she did finally tell that my mother has been teaching her about Jesus, about all of this shit, and um, has been telling her not to tell us. Uh, I've talked to my dad, who was not aware of this either. I don't really know what to do. Uh, I love my parents. We rely on them a lot for help with our kids, uh, uh, with babysitting, and they live just around the corner from us, and, and it's been a, a big help. But the this is just unacceptable. It's unfucking acceptable to me to... Uh, have my trust broken and, and my parenting uh, undermined like that. How do I approach my mom on this? How do I, how do I do this? It would be one thing if your daughter picked up the grace habit because they were at your mom and dad so often for all that free childcare, which has some value to you and your wife and your parents at their house, their rules, they said grace before meals and your kids were exposed to your parents' religious practice. That would be one thing. And I think that's a legitimate thing. You can't tell your parents not to say grace before meals with in their own house even when your kids are there. You can't prevent your kids from being exposed to other people's religious practices. That's just a fact of life. The issue here, though, is teaching your daughter about this Jesus person and then swearing her to secrecy, asking your daughter, your two-and-a-half-year-old daughter – to lie to her parents and hide things from her parents, that is not a lesson that any adult in a small child's life should impart to that child. And that is unacceptable. I think that's how you approach this with your mother. It is fine that you believe in Jesus. It is fine that my kid knows that her grandparents are religious people. If you want to say grace in front of them, that is fine. It is not fine to indoctrinate my child. It is not fine to Bible lesson my kid. It is not fine to swear this kid to secrecy and introduce conflict and stress. Your kid was really worried about revealing this to you, sharing this with you, breaking trust with grandma. And you guys have to be in league, you and your mother you have, and your father and your wife. You have to be in league. You have to be the adults in your life that your kids can trust and turn to, not the adults in your kid's life that are pulling them in different directions, swearing them to secrecy and on and on. You could also take the tack of telling mom that you will go to war with her on this Jesus thing. If she's going to teach your kid about Jesus, you're going to unteach your kid about Jesus. If she's going to do Bible lessons, you're going to do un-Bible lessons and complicate the narrative. But that's not cool. And that's not fair to your kid. And there has to be day fucking taunt. So this ends or you guys are going to have to make new childcare arrangements. This ends or you say to your mother, you're going to see a lot less of your grandchildren and you won't be able to see them unsupervised. So make your pick. What's more important to you? Having these kids in your life and living your faith as an example to them. Maybe that'll inspire them in adulthood to adopt your faith 
or creating conflict and stress in our family that prevents you from being in their lives at all. Tell your mother not to poison the well, that her relationship with these kids is more important than your daughter's two and a half, her relationship with your mother's imaginary sky friend, Jesus. Sounds like you have an ally in your dad, and that's good. Sounds like you have an ally in your wife, and that's good. Sounds like, though, you may have to make alternate childcare arrangements, at least in the short term, for this to break through your mother's thick head. Hi, Dan. I'm a mid-30s woman calling from Canada. Yesterday, my husband was called in to a meeting at work, and it became apparent that he's been surfing porn at work while on the company dime. He works for a a school, a college, and he admitted to it and he told me about this. And I'm not really sure how to process this information. Now, I like to think of myself as a pretty sex positive and and porn positive person. I know he watches porn. We we both do. and, And that's fine. And we are, we've been married for seven years and we do have a young child. And I know our sex life took for a bit of a turn uh, when we, you know, when she was born. But I I'd sort of thought things were getting better. I know his porn consumption became a little, uh, you know, increased when after that happened. But I didn't think it was like this. So now he is suspended with pay. and. We're waiting on disciplinary action, and one of the things that could potentially happen is that he could lose his job. And I'm not really sure what to do if he loses his job over watching porn at work. What? what I, I, you know, besides being really angry, I'm not sure what to say to him. I'm not sure how to move through this. This is completely new territory for me. In your years of experience, have you ever heard of something like this? What? What typically happens? What should I do? It's a little late for this, a little like closing the barn door after the cows get out, but you might want to show your husband his phone and the internet browser on his phone and the great wide world of pornography that is available to him on his phone so he doesn't have to use his work computer when he is horny and in the office and needing to hopefully in the privacy of his office or the bathroom, wherever it is he was doing this, rub one out for sanity's sake. We had a little debate here in Savage Love HQ with the tech savvy at risk youth about what's really upsetting you here more, that your husband's looking at porn? Are you angry at your husband and the porn consumption that put his job at risk? Are you angry at his employer for being such a pornphobic, sexphobic nut that he may lose his job over this, over looking at a little pornography on his computer at work, which of course people shouldn't do and it can get people in trouble, but for fuck's sake. Was he looking at it in full view of anyone? Was he looking at it to such an extent that he wasn't getting any other work done? Are there other people in the office who are on Etsy all day long and they're not getting in trouble, but he looked at boobies, so that's a problem? Is it sex phobia and porn phobia in the workplace uh, on behalf of his employers that's pissing you off, as was the opinion of a couple of the tech savvy at-risk youth? Or are you mad at your husband for being so stupid as to put his job at risk by looking at a little porn? Are you mad at both? Maybe you should be mad at both. Maybe it was foolish and risky on your husband's part, and maybe it's porn and sex phobic on his employer's part. What your husband is probably going to have to do to save his job is fall on the sex addiction sword. If you're a regular listener, you know I don't put much stock in the sex addiction model 
or theory, which seems to be mostly pushed by religious groups and organizations to pathologize normal, healthy libido and desire. Yes, people can look at too much porn. People can look at or eat or do too much of anything. Porn isn't the problem. Compulsion can be. Porn is no likelier to induce. There are studies no likelier to induce compulsive behavior or consumption than, than a whole lot of other things, right? Porn ain't heroin. But a lot of people out there who, when they get caught with their hands in the nookie jar, when they get caught committing adultery, when they get caught being Tiger Woods or that Duggar kid whose first name I can't remember who was chasing all those porn stars or they get caught consuming a lot of pornography will claim that they are a victim of sex addiction, a victim of porn addiction and get their ass into therapy and plea helpless in the face of this evil monster of pornography. Please blame pornography. Please don't blame me and let me come back to work and put some safeguards on my computer that will prevent me because I'm helpless in the face of access to pornography. Da, 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 da. Your husband could do that. And that may engender sympathy from his employers or the college that he works at if indeed it's porn phobia at work there and sex phobia at work there because that is a posture prone, grabbing ankles, that people who hate and fear porn and hate and fear sex find a great deal of appeal in. It appeals to them. It appeals to that porn is a monster impulse in employers, in spouses, in church communities, and on and on and on. I'm sorry that you're in this position. I'm sorry your husband, unlike me, works somewhere that you can get busted for looking at a little pornography, but here you are. And even if falling on the sex addiction, porn addiction sword doesn't save his job at this place, he's probably going to want to fall on that sword anyway and get a little sex addiction counseling or therapy because that'll aid him in landing his subsequent position someplace else. Because when he applies for a new job, particularly in academia, and he has to talk about why he lost his previous job. He can then point to the treatment he got in the wake of losing that job and that he's better now, all better now. He doesn't have to add that his wife has acquainted him with the web browser on his phone as well. Hi, Dan. I'm a newly married female in my late 20s, and I have a question regarding how my husband and I should handle a pretty humiliating moment of me being sexually harassed at a rehearsal dinner. We have a good relationship with this uncle and his wife. They're on my husband's side of the family. They live about an hour away from us, and nothing like this has ever happened before. I was sitting with my sisters and my brother-in-law when I noticed my husband go blank in the face and then noticed that this uncle was making crude gestures behind my back. Everyone at the table was at a loss of what to do. So eventually, after you know, just not being able to put up with it, I got up and just switched to a new table across the room. In the process of me standing up, he grabbed my ass. I spent the rest of the dinner upset and shocked and then cried about it later that night. And then again on the morning of my wedding, I felt the need to explain to my siblings. Obviously, this has never happened to me before because otherwise we wouldn't have a relationship with this creep. This uncle is over 75, was very drunk, and we haven't spoken since. I spent my wedding keeping an eye on him because I couldn't bear to be within five feet of him. Obviously, I don't think I can see this man ever again. Being sexually harassed isn't at all new to me, but this incident was public, humiliating, and ruined a night that I was already so worried about. It also put a huge damper for both of us on our wedding day. I don't know what to do about this. His wife was sitting right next to him while this was happening, and when it comes to my husband's family, we spend more time with them than anyone else. It's a good relationship that I've always really enjoyed, and I don't know what to do. I'm just so sick and disappointed in both of them. And I just don't know if I can ever forgive them for ruining something that was so important to both of us. This just fucking sucks. So help. Well, first, congratulations on your 
wedding. I hope you and your husband are very happy. You say you're never going to speak to your uncle again, your uncle-in-law, the creep who grabbed your ass at your rehearsal dinner. And I think you should speak to him again. I think you should go to him. And in front of his wife, your aunt, who seems to have been complicit or at least passive in the face of this shit, demand an apology. Tell him how it made you feel. Ask him if he remembers what he did. He's 75 years old and he got Sounds like pretty fucking hammered at your rehearsal dinner. Even if, and I don't want to be ageist, but even if at 75 he's fully in charge of his faculties and he's not losing touch or losing impulse control, uh, apparently with enough alcohol in him, he can disinhibit in a way that can ruin a young woman's rehearsal dinner and make her very upset and feel insecure and paranoid on her wedding day because there he is. You could have disinvited him to the wedding actually in the wake of this and asked him not to come so you didn't have to worry about him the whole time, not to blame the victim. But kind of soured your wedding day a little bit because instead of just enjoying the day and losing yourself in the love and support and attention of your family, you had to kind of keep an eye on him and where he was and make sure you were always on the other side of the room and you had people running interference that can't have been a welcome distraction on your wedding day. So go to uncle asshole and confront him and demand an apology. Ask him if he remembers what he did because you remember it and other people saw it and they remember it. And he felt entitled to reach out and grab your ass in front of your then fiance, now husband and humiliate you sexually by acting like a lewd jerk right behind you and then demand an apology. And if he doesn't remember doing it, Encourage him never to touch alcohol again and demand an apology anyway. He's still responsible for his actions, even if he was hammered. And then look him in the eye. And if you believe that your apology is sincere, if he's mortified by what he did, if it's news to him that this went down, which I highly doubt, but maybe he's hoping it wasn't as bad as he thinks it was. And maybe it wasn't as upsetting to you as, you know, he could be rationalizing this whole thing to himself. But if you look him in the eye and he's truly mortified, by his actions and hopefully grateful to have this opportunity because he raised the subject to apologize to you sincerely. Maybe he can still have a place in your life. If he shrugs it off, if he acts like it's no big fucking deal, if he acts like you're the one with the problem, then he doesn't get to have a place in your life and neither does his wife. Don't see them anymore. Cut them out. Root, asshole, and branch. Hey, Dan. I'm a young man on the West Coast attending a university and I have a question for you regarding, uh, I guess, workplace ethics. How about that? So, you know, I go to this university and there's this uh, professor in particular who I really respect. Okay, he's like 50 and he's married. And I just recently found out that he asked out like a friend of mine and this girl is like 22 um, and she's she's a former student. Like she just left the university. I can't help but feel uh, like I'm losing respect for this for this guy because um, it just seems to me like it's kind of creepy that he's picking up on this like young girl and I don't know I don't know if it's you know like the term you use like sex negativity or something but it just feels kind of like unethical and it just seems kind of I don't know beneath a respectable professor to to go after one of his really his young students, even though I know she's not currently like there. So I don't, it's not like his career is threatened. And even if she were, it's not like I would say anything. I'm not going there or anything. I I just think when I heard about it, I thought, Oh, that, you know, I really respected this guy. And then I I thought, wow, that's 
kind of lame. He's such a critical thinker and he's a deep guy and he has so many inspiring. He's like passionate and he, he's just energetic and he, he's just really, he had a big impact and influence on me. So it's not like I, I dislike him or anything, but still nonetheless, my, yeah, my, my issue is that I just can't help but lose respect for him in this. And I, I guess I don't know, really know why, because I mean, you know, like they say, don't hate the player, right? I mean, she's a, she's a beautiful girl. And uh, she said supposedly he's breaking up with his wife, so I guess he wouldn't necessarily be cheating, although he is still technically married. Nonetheless, um, you know, like you always say, stay happy, do what you have to stay happy and stay sane. Rather, even if he was married, it wouldn't be a huge deal, I guess. Why do I, why, why can I not shake the feeling that I'm losing, I lose respect for this guy uh, when I hear about this? And uh, even though I think about it logically, and I think, you know, it's, maybe it's not necessarily a big deal. Nonetheless, I just feel it's unethical. And I, I, again, I can't help but lose respect for the guy. I'm having a hard time seeing the ethical dilemma here or the concern that you have. We have one consenting adult asking another consenting adult out on a date. And the person who's asking has no power anymore over the person who has been asked. And they are free to decline if they would like to decline or accept if they would like to accept. You don't even mention that your friend, this young woman, 22-year-old adult woman who was asked out by this creepy old professor, you don't even ask, you don't even mention how she feels about it, whether she was upset, whether she was annoyed. Maybe she was. Maybe we should just infer that because she went and shared this with you maybe in distress or maybe she was shocked and appalled in the same way that you were shocked and appalled. But you keep throwing around the word ethical the ethics of this situation. And in my eyes, the ethics are not a problem. There's no ethical lapse here. If he took no for an answer, if the answer was no, no ethical problem. If he took yes for an answer because she wanted to date him, she would like to see him, would like to go out with him, even though he is still married to someone else, then that's fine too, ethically, schmethically speaking. And I wonder why this has caused you to lose so much respect for him that you respected his mind. He's a critical thinker. He's a deep guy. He's had a big impact uh, on you and how you see and process the world. And he helped to educate you and helped to turn your mind into the ferocious brain beast that it is. And all of that collapses somehow when you learn that he has a dick and sometimes he thinks with his dick just like every other guy on the planet. And maybe sometimes he does something that he regrets or perhaps that he shouldn't have done or that was inadvisable. But so long as there was no pressure, there was no coercion, there was no sexual assault. Thinking with your dick a little bit, doing something stupid, getting out over your skis, hitting on a 22-year-old. And I'm here from the 50s to tell you that occasionally it's the 22-year-old who hits on the person in their 50s, I must say. Not necessarily a huge ethical lapse. That's just humans stepping on their dicks, which human men have been doing for fucking ever. If he wouldn't take no for an answer, if he kept coming back at your friend, if he was creepy about it or coercive about it, or he was asking out students, yeah, then there's a problem. Then there's a huge ethical lapse and perhaps a fireable offense in there somewhere. But one consenting adult asking another consenting adult out who is free to say yes or no, not an ethical problem. I think your anger at this man is a little over the top, a little misplaced, and one day you will be that man, and there may be a 22-year-old you want to stick your dick in who might want your dick stuck in them at that point. And 22-year-olds aren't just for 22-year-olds. 
Maybe some of your anger is that you don't feel he's entitled to the 22-year-olds that only you are or guys in your age group are. That's not necessarily the case. So I think you should examine that. Think about that critically. Like, is part of this jealousy because he is, because he has some things right now that you don't have status and position and power, even to a certain extent. And all of those things are aphrodisiacs and in a way, compensations in the attractiveness game. Like everybody loses youth and beauty after a while and the power of youth that we talk about the power of the older, wealthier, more established, blah, blah, blah. There's also power in youth and beauty. You don't want the older, more powerful person taking advantage of youth and beauty plus naivete and inexperience, but there's power on both sides. And if there's not a naivete or experience gap or brain gap, it can be pretty evenly balanced. So I would challenge you to think a little bit more deeply about this. And then if you think he has behaved unethically, sexually, or done something inappropriate, compartmentalize it. There's his brain And I assume that the courses you took from him weren't sexual ethics. He was teaching you about something else, teaching you to think critically about something else. And you can appreciate his brain and his erudition and his mind and the way it works and the deep thinker that he is and be able to also see his full humanity and the fact that like so many other people, he's complicated. And maybe every once in a while he steps on his dick and falls on his face. And maybe this was one of those times. And he may require forgiveness and some compassion and understanding just as we all require those things as we move through life. So long as he didn't do anything coercive, he wasn't abusing his power. He didn't pressure this woman to say yes to him. Did he take no for an answer? Okay, then did he take yes for an answer? Well, then this is none of your fucking business. Is it? Hi, Dan, this is a 21 year old, this gender straight woman from California And I've been in an 11-month relationship with my boyfriend, and it's going fantastic. However, there's just one problem that I can't seem to get over, and that's when he rejects me during sex or rejects the idea of having sex at all. Every time that it happens, I just break down. I freak out. I completely overreact. It just brings back a lot of old feelings of insecurity, and I just want to know how to better deal with it. We do have sex fairly often, three to five times a week, He's and it's very satisfying. He's definitely not, not satisfying me. It's just I am never the one rejecting him. He is always the one rejecting me. So I'm hoping you can maybe give me his perspective on it. You can make me see it from his point of view because he doesn't really have an answer for me, and I don't really have an answer for him. I just don't want to react this way anymore when this happens. He doesn't deserve it. He has every right to say no to me. You're never the one rejecting him. He's always the one rejecting you is a problem. If you guys were having sex once every three months or once a month or once a week, you're having sex a year in three to five times a week, five days out of seven on a good week. You two are fucking. So this isn't about rejection. He likes you. He really likes you. His dick really likes being inside you or near you or on you. He just has a lower libido than you do, a slightly lower libido than you do. This isn't about rejection or attraction. This is about a slight libido mismatch. And I say slight because I hear every day, every week we get calls from people who their libido is once a day and they are with somebody whose libido is once a month or once every six months. And that is a huge fucking problem, particularly in a sexually exclusive relationship. But five times a week, three times a week, you guys are doing it. 
Every time he wants it, you're game. Every time you want it, sounds like he's game some of the times, not all of the times, but consequently because you're always up for it, but he's only up for it five times a week. Sometimes when you initiate, he's not down. And so what do you do? You masturbate and you tell yourself that it's okay, that he likes me, he really likes me, and this isn't about me and it's not about him. It's about a force outside of my control and his control. It's just about libido. There's a rough number of times a week that he's up for sex and a rough number of times a week that I'm up for sex and my number is a little higher than his. And what accommodation can you two agree to? What accommodation can you create? And those times when he's not into it, is he willing to hold the vibrator? Is he willing to hold you while you use the vibrator? Is he willing to just be intimate and lie with you even if he's not up for full sex? Maybe you can go there. And maybe sometimes you initiate and you're sexually pent up and you really want to do it and he doesn't want to do it and you have this meltdown because that means there's no release for you. Well, there is release for you if you just go fucking masturbate when you want and he doesn't. When you're horny and he's not and you initiate and he declines, uh, if you don't do something with that erotic energy that prompted you to initiate, yeah, that might fuel your meltdown. You may transfer that erotic energy to anger and fury and rage and recrimination and tears Instead of transferring that erotic energy from the desire to get off to all the rest of that shit, plow forward with that desire to get off and that erotic energy, which you can do on your own. If you hit on him and he's not down, say, get the fuck out of here. I'm getting my vibrator out of the drawer because I need to get off. I need to come with or without you. And if he has a problem with that accommodation, that perfectly reasonable accommodation, yeah, you give me a call back and you give me his phone number and I will give him a call. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the Tech Savvy at Rescue. I have a question about how to get my partner to help me have orgasms again. I am a gender queer possessor of a vagina and he is a cis dude. Sex used to be really easy. I was one of the very lucky few who was able to orgasm through penetrative sex, but a year or so ago, I had a total hysterectomy, and since then, things have changed. It takes a lot longer to get me going, a lot longer to keep me going, and to then to compound all of this, um, he is on the autism spectrum and is frankly awful about talking about anything but also sex, and um, so whenever I try to ask him things like, well what would turn him on or what his kinks would possibly be. He has always historically gone monosyllabic. He starts blushing. Um, same goes if I try to tell him about my kinks. Um, so last time we had sex, I told him that we needed to try some foreplay before getting going, which then ended up in me getting fingered for about 10 seconds before he just decided to shove it in. He doesn't seem to understand when I tell him that it hurts or that he needs to use some lube or literally anything because he, I guess, panics so much that he just doesn't hear it. We have been together for a decade. We have a kid. We don't have any other issues besides this, really. We are similar in politics and in societal views and everything like that. And I don't want to have to leave him, but this is so bad and it is just getting worse like as time progresses i don't know what to do if he has a hard time talking with you email with him maybe it'll be easier for him to have a conversation over email if 
The issue is you need a lot more foreplay and more creative foreplay, and he doesn't know what foreplay is exactly. You'll have to take the lead. And I think the workaround here is to tell him that you decide when the penetration shall commence so that he isn't going, well, I've had my fingers in her for 10 seconds. Now I can go for it. I have done my foreplay due diligence. It needs to be up to you. You need to be the one who determines when there has been enough foreplay for you guys to pivot to PIV, to, to, to vaginal penetration, to intercourse. So just tell him that. You welcome the presence of his dick while you guys are rolling around and engaged in foreplay. And foreplay is a two-way street. You will enact acts of foreplay upon his body as well. But the moment that you move to PIV sex, to penetrative sex, you will determine when that moment comes. Instead of him putting his dick in you, instead of him shoving his dick in you, you will decide when you sink your pussy down on his dick. Tell him that. Take responsibility for initiating the PIV off his shoulders. Maybe he would welcome being relieved of having to make that judgment call. You decide. And incorporate toys and incorporate whatever else that you need to get there. Perhaps the standard that you should set is you have your first orgasm before you guys have penetrative sex. Using fingers or toys or fantasy play or whatever else it is that you need that works for you, roll it all out. And if he has a hard time because he shuts down having that conversation face-to-face, have it sitting side-by-side, looking at opposite directions, or have it via email. Hey, Dan. Um, I'm a 26-year-old female living in the South. Um, I recently got an Instagram, and one of the people I started to follow was an ex-boyfriend of mine who I dated from, like, age 19 to 21. Um, I haven't seen him in, like, three years, but we're on pretty good terms. And I may have talked to him like once or twice in the past year. Um, so I'm calling you because I was scrolling through that section of Instagram where it like shows you the people that you follow, like what they've been up to, like what photos they like and shit. Um, I saw that he liked a picture of a girl who looked really young and like young enough that in this like tiny thumbnail photo of it, I was, it caught my attention. And so I clicked on it and it, totally was a young girl like 16 or something and it sparked like this weird investigation on my part I like started looking at the pages that he followed and I found of like out of like 400 pages he like I would I found like maybe a dozen that were like jail baby type profiles like people who girls who were like may or may not have been under 18 but it was like their thing to present that way like very like over sexualized young looking girls and then there was like another dozen pages of girls who were actually under 18 so like girl gymnasts and models and stuff anywhere from like 13 to 17 years old so I I don't know. I just immediately like felt sick over this. It, I think that like a 32 year old man should not be following and liking pages of girls under 18. And I'm having like a lot of feelings about this. I, I don't know, like, do I, or how would I report this person? Like for what I reported the pages that were under 13, which is like against Instagram policy rules. But I don't know if what he's doing is technically wrong or not. I'm obviously freaking out about it um i guess my feeling is that if this is what he's doing on like a public place on the internet i wonder what he's doing elsewhere part of me wants to like call him and be like what the fuck is going on 
but I don't know if I really have the right to do that after all this time. Um, you know, and I'm also, I'm just upset because I don't know. It's like, really love this person. And I just, I feel like I must have really misjudged him and I'm feeling like, <laughs> but anyway, I've like, I've asked every day between thinking that I'm like overreacting and this is none of my business. And it's, it's Instagram pages like it's fine it's not illegal or anything and then I also feel like I have this responsibility to act if I think that like a child is being endangered or exploited or something so I, I just wanted to call and see if you had any insider if you could help me sort it out my advice would be to unfollow your ex this ex that you dated way 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 back when you yourself were a teenager. Why are you following this guy? Sounds like he's a bit of a creep. Maybe he's one of those guys who's into barely legal. Maybe he's one of those guys who's attracted to adolescent-ish bodies. Not a pedophile, but attracted to young girls and young women. And that's super creepy. And maybe he's not the person that you thought he was, although he was dating you when you were a teenager, but he's your ex-fucking boyfriend. And there's nowhere that you can go to report somebody for liking photographs on Instagram that you think it's creepy for them to like or following accounts on Instagram that you think it's creepy for them to follow. My advice to you, if you are this distressed by witnessing your boyfriend's activities, your ex-boyfriend's activities on Instagram, would be to unfollow your fucking ex-boyfriend on Instagram. You're not obligated to follow him. And I'm sorry, you're not in a position to police him. And again, there's no authority to go to to report this guy for liking the publicly posted photographs of these young women who are seeking likes and attention online and are going to get some likes and attention that if you really drill down on where these likes and all this attention is coming from might be creepy, even creepy in the extreme or inappropriate. But inappropriate ain't necessarily illegal and a little inappropriate liking on Instagram is not evidence that a sex crime has been committed or is about to be committed. Maybe a little bit of a thought crime, but not a sex crime. But the best advice for you, again, is to unfollow the dude who is not who you thought he was. This dude that it upsets you to follow. You are not obligated to follow, and you do not have the authority to police. All right, we're going to take a quick break from your calls to have a conversation with Eli Finkel, professor at Northwestern University with appointments in the psychology department and the Kellogg School of Management, also the author of the new book that will be of interest to many Lovecast listeners, The All or Nothing Marriage, How the Best Marriages Work. Hey, Eli, thanks for jumping on the phone. Thanks for having me. So congrats on the new book, and I'm sorry to say, and I'm just going to toss it out there, that I haven't had a chance to read it yet, uh, but I'm going to read it before you and I have a conversation September 26th at the University Bookstore about the new book. So for those of us out there who haven't read the book yet, me and all of my listeners, tell us about it. This is a book that tries to make sense of how marriage works today, uh, marriage in America, what it used to be like, what it's like now, and the ways in which the changes that we've seen over time make it a little bit more difficult to have sort of an acceptable level marriage, but also make it possible to have a pretty exceptional marriage. What makes it more difficult to have just an acceptable marriage? I mean, it used to be that people would, I like to say there's no settling down without some settling for. People used to be a lot more willing to stick around in the settle for marriage than they seem to be today. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, the the book casts a, a fairly wide lens. So it actually starts, you know, way back uh, 
um, in the uh, colonial era. Um, and it goes until today and it tracks how marriage changed. The, the history stuff at the beginning is relatively short, but it's expansive. And, and the reality is the nature of our expectations have changed. It isn't as simple as the expectations getting more versus less because it used to be that people depended upon their spouse to survive, like, like literally to get enough food to eat and to avoid freezing. Mm-hmm. And today we don't do anything like that. But we have these significant expectations, not only to be loved and to love, but also to feel a profound sense of personal growth and aliveness. So what you hear now that you didn't used to hear in the past is people will say things like, he's a good man and I love him and I know he means well, but I feel like life is stagnant and I'm not willing to live that way for the next 30 years. Doesn't that undermine marriage though? You know, I often talk about how you need to have realistic expectations. And if you're looking to one other person to be your everything, to be your self-actualization project, to be your lover and your best friend and the person who fills you with delight and surprise but also is very comforting and known and secure, you're going to be disappointed all the time. Isn't something that makes marriage work having realistic expectations? And what you described to me sounds a little bit like unrealistic expectations or too much for any one relationship, too much weight for a marriage to bear? Yeah, it's interesting. The initial title I had for the book was The Freighted Marriage, the idea that we're just piling more and more and more on this one relationship while we're spending less and less time with our friends and and other loved ones. And I came to believe that 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 thesis was wrong. Um, It is true that we're asking more of our marriage in in really important ways um, in terms of our emotional well-being, our psychological well-being, but it doesn't necessarily have to be a bad thing. The, Mm -hmm. The question is not are your expectations, you know, pretty high or are they lower than that? The, the, the crucial thing is, are the expectations sensible in light of what the marriage is able to provide? Mm-hmm. And the thing that I think is exciting, maybe the, the thing that's most exciting about the book is the insight that for those of us who have these very high level expectations and are able to meet them, we can have a level of marital fulfillment that was largely out of reach in an era where people really didn't look to the marriage for that much. What about people who aren't able to fulfill those high expectations? What about Well, yeah, this is the idea behind the all or nothing marriage is that is that we've changed the the nature of marriage, we've changed our expectations of marriage in such a way that it's harder to find fulfillment in the marriage. And and this is I think the point you were making is mm-hmm. is if you look to the marriage for all these sorts of things, Boy, aren't you going to end up disappointed? And and on average, yes. Um, and and the data show that the average marriage has been getting a little bit worse, a little bit less satisfying over the last forty, fifty years in America. And and I think you've pegged the reason why we're asking so much that more of these marriages are falling short. But you think you think that's a good thing. You think the all or nothing marriage is a is a good thing because if you win the lottery, if you win the marriage lottery, it's going to be amazing. But if you don't win the marriage lottery, you're probably going to pull the plug because we all have this expectation that our partner should be the be all and end all and meet all of our needs and be com- completely fulfilling. Not not exactly. So I, I wouldn't say it's a good thing or a bad thing. I would say it depends. And I would say it's a good thing for those of us who can pull it off. Um, some of your listeners will remember from you know Psych 101 that Abraham Maslow had this hierarchy of needs where there were the basic physiological and safety needs at the bottom. And as you get closer to the top, there's this idea of self-actualization, that, that you can actually grow into a more authentic version of yourself. 
And these are the sorts of things we're looking for our marriage to do these days. And it, it is a tall order and more marriages are falling short, which is why a lot of them are disappointing. But a crucial thing to realize about the expectations up there is that if you meet those sorts of needs, if you fulfill those sorts of expl- expectations, the benefit, the power of actually having that type of success is enormous. And, and in the 1950s or in 1800 or whatever, when we weren't looking to the top of Maslow's hierarchy, we weren't looking for self-actualization through the marriage. It's true that it was easier to meet the expectations we were bringing to the marriage, but we weren't even shooting to try to achieve these very highest level needs. And if we're able to meet those very highest level needs, there's room at the top for just an exquisite sense of connection that, that was largely out of reach before. But that most people's marriages will fall short of that yes, exquisite most, sense of connection. That is exactly right. And the idea of the all or nothing marriage is the average marriage has been getting a bit worse and the best marriages have been getting a bit better. But the book takes very seriously your concern. And, and the, you know, I, I'm, I'm proud that it is an intellectually engaging book, but I have to admit that there is some self-help in it. The last half or third of the book is... Mm-hmm. Okay, well, if this theory of marriage is correct, how can how can we actually be happier in our marriages? And um, I, I introduce you know three approaches that we can adopt, and it de- depends on this sort of supply and demand type thinking that I've laid out already. Is what we're demanding of our marriage realistic in what in terms of what we're supplying to the marriage in terms of things like time, effort, compatibility, and so forth? And one of the chapters in the book is very clear about ways that we can start asking less of the marriage. Uh, ah. how, is it that, how is it that we can take off some of the pressure? I think that's, you said earlier, it's crucial to realize this or that about expectations. And I think one of the most crucial things for people to realize is about expectations is you can adjust them. Exactly. And if you have unrealistic expectations, as many people do, you know, this comes up on my show all the time. Unrealistic expectations around uh, the person that you're in love with who says that they're in love with you also wanting to fuck other people. Whether they do or not, that's a whole other discussion. But a lot of people have this expectation that love means you only have eyes for me. That cliche. Love means you don't want to fuck other people. Not that you've made a monogamous commitment and you're not going to fuck other people, but that you just don't even want. You're not even interested. You're not going to notice how hot the barista is. You're not going to think your personal trainer is sexy because you only think me is sexy. And that's an unrealistic expectation that undermines so many commitments and, and, and damages so many relationships, marriages. And people can adjust that. Are there other expectations that people have that they place on marriage that they can decide to adjust so that they are likelier to find that fulfilling all marriage that you describe? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I have your view entirely on, on those sorts of issues. The, the trick is you can't tell right away whether your expectations are too high. I mean, let me say it differently. You give a clear example where, you know, people just have unrealistic exp- expectations about what the human mating system is like. And I agree that, that those are, are going to be trouble in any relationship you can find and people need to fix them. But there are other sorts of compatibility or, or mutual understanding expectations. And when you have disappointment in 
one of those domains, it's not immediately clear whether the expectations are too high and unrealistic or whether through some additional effort and, and other ways of approaching the issue, you might be able to meet those expectations. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm wary of jumping to the conclusion that when you experience disappointment in marriage, the best thing to do is, is to calibrate your expectations down. And the book is really clear. I mean, the, the book spends separate chapters on the various options. One option I call going all in, and it's, it's ways science-based procedures that we can use if we want to try to sustain those high expectations, but ideally have a relationship that meets them. There's another chapter that's about how we can try to just do quick and dirty love hacks that allow us to, um, that allow us to meet, not necessarily meet the highest expectations, but at least keep things going pretty well until we actually have the time and effort to go all in. Well, maybe instead of saying to people, adjust your expectations, the first step is to interrogate your expectations, yes. to question and examine them. You know, if you have this expectation yes. that your spouse isn't going to abuse you emotionally or physically, that is an entirely realistic expectation and not yes. one that you should ever, ever adjust. Precisely. But if you have this expectation that, you know, 20 years in, you're going to be having as much sex as you were having at three months – that's an unrealistic expectation That's that right. sets you up for disappointment that will make you feel dissatisfied in the marriage, not because you aren't having a reasonable or even satisfying amount of sex for a couple together 20 years, but because you're holding on to this bullshit notion that it should be that the three months pace should be sustainable over the decades, which is an unrealistic expectation. That's exactly right. The, the only um, the only tweak I would make to the idea that we need to interrogate our own expectations is that our the realistic nature uh, of our expectations depends on the relationship itself. So we can't just, or I, I think we shouldn't just critique the expectations themselves. We should critique the expectations in light of who am I? What is my re- what is my partner like? What is our dynamic like? And and it's that mutual. Uh, examination of both what am I asking of the relationship and realistically what can the relationship provide Mm -hmm. that helps us make decisions about which expectations we want to let go of versus the ones that are really important and we want to make the relationship align better with them. Okay, so last question before we let you go. This idea that there's this all or nothing marriage out there, that there's just this opportunity in marriage the way people marry now and what they expect for marriage now, that for you to just have it all, to have this like amazing, fulfilling, mutually self-actualizing marriage, is the lesson there then if you're in a mildly dissatisfying marriage that you should pull the plug in hopes that the next person you marry is going to be the lottery winning marriage? What's your advice to people who are in fine relationships, fine marriages, mildly dissatisfied, just sort of ghost shipping along, maybe raising kids together? Is the lesson in the all or nothing marriage get out or or, or stumble along? Because well, I, I think yeah. of – and I'm sure anybody who writes about marriage has listened to every Soundtime musical <laughs> or should. <laughs> That's right. Because I always think of that moment in Company when Bobby, the lead character, asks one of his married mm. friends, are you ever sorry you got married? Mm. Uh, and he says you're always sorry and you're always grateful. Is yeah. there room in the all or nothing marriage thesis for that kind of ambiguity? A feeling, well, the kind of conflict. Well, it just so happens that that uh, your listeners in that situation are incredibly lucky because there's a new book called The All or Nothing <laughs> Marriage that that deals exactly with this set of issues. I don't think that there is ever going to be an easy answer, right? Most of us have 
periods of time, perhaps long periods of time when we're like, eh, like it's fine, but it's not great. And there are ways that we can improve that. There's no reason for us to stay feeling stagnant like that. But whether the solution is to calibrate expectations or uh, engage in new sorts of activities that can actually make the marriage achieve those explanations, those are things that defy easy answers. And like I said, your listeners are lucky that they are alive in 2017. Well, I certainly agree with that, particularly when you look at the history of marriage. And, oh, yeah. And you recognize that for most of human history, it was a property transaction. Totally. Uh, with women as the property and the egalitarian union of two autonomous individuals who get to define for themselves what their marriage means. Right. And amazing. That is amazing. And that does, I think, make for more fulfilling marriages. And people need to be reminded that marriage isn't uh, orders that you're handed. Marriage is something that you two as a couple get to create together and you can recreate it together. Exactly. Uh, Eli Finkel, the new book is The All or Nothing Marriage that I promise I will read before you and I sit down to talk <laughs> about it uh, at, on September 26th at the University Bookstore here in Seattle. Thank you for joining us today, Eli. It was really fascinating to chat with you. It was fun. Thank you so much. Hi, Dan. Um, I'm calling from uh, Canada. The reason I'm calling is uh, I have, I'm married um, about 10 years, uh, but I haven't been interested in uh, having sex for about eight years. I don't think it's my partner, but uh, because I'm not attracted to anybody else, um, I've had all sorts of Custom, so I uh, don't think it's my body, but I don't know what's going on. And so when we try, it is just like everything comes to an end. My mind kicks on and um, it just kind of stops. And also things get rather painful. So um, I don't know how to bring things back and my husband is taking it very well although um, obviously I think he's hiding it I was wondering whether or not going to an adult sex club would you know turn us both on so that uh, I would finally feel some sort of thing but uh, he's pretty vanilla and I've never done anything like that so I don't know if that's something we should consider or if we should go to a couples therapy or what. And I'm just wondering if you have any suggestions. And I do love him very much. I just don't feel like a sexual person anymore, which I very much used to. But that was before I became quite depressed. And I've been like that for about the same amount of time that uh, we've been together. So, uh, yeah, I would definitely appreciate your advice and thank you. First, I hope you're seeing someone about your depression. I hope you're getting treated for this medical condition, treated for your depression. I'm going to address the sex thing, though. You say, would going to an adult sex club turn us both on? He's pretty vanilla. And by inference, what I took away from that is going to an adult sex club would turn you on and you are not vanilla. So go to the fucking sex club. Drag him there. I think that you're just fucking bored on top of being depressed. I think you're bored and you require some excitement. We've had Meredith Chivers, other sex researchers on who really dug into women's libidos and regular listeners. People have heard me cite this example before. Women with no libido, flatline libido, no desire. Their marriages are falling apart. Their husbands have endured years and years and years. They've had all the tests as you have had. Nothing works and the marriage is at stake. 
and just nothing will bring their libido back. It's dead. There's something wrong with them. They're hopelessly, irrevocably broken. And then they get a divorce and then they're fucking horny again. And it's because they were bored. It's because it wasn't that their husband didn't turn them on, but just the husband. This person symbolizing the death of adventure and variety and possibility and newness sexually flatlined them, deadened them. And I think you're kind of backing into a solution for that that might work for you, that would introduce some newness and some variety. Even if your husband went to a sex club, an adult sex club, as opposed to a children's sex club, you went to a sex club, they're all for adults, and you didn't touch anybody else. Just the environment might invigorate your libido, might arouse you, might turn you on, might snap something into place, might kick you into gear. And I think you know that. Some part of your reptile brain knows that. That's why you're asking for it. But rather than asking for it from an, an entitled place and saying, this is what I need, you're framing it around, maybe this is what we need, but if it's not what you want, then it's not what we need, so we shouldn't do it because you're super vanilla, dot, dot, dot. You are not vanilla. There's something about your sexuality that is calling out for variety, that's calling out for variance, that's calling out for a kinky, erotic environment. Go for it. Drag your vanilla-ass husband to the adult sex club and throw yourself into it. That doesn't mean fuck other people. Throw yourself into the eroticized environment and see what happens. See what that doesn't unlock. And I think it might work for you. I think that's the reason why this has occurred to you. But because you're a woman, because you've been socialized to defer to men, unless you can convince yourself that it works for him, unless he tells you that it's what he wants as well, you don't feel entitled to it. You are entitled to it all by your lonesome. Even if he doesn't want to go, you should go all by yourself with the understanding that you're not going to touch anybody else, that you're going to be a single woman at the sex club and you're going to observe. Go. See what happens. I think that's the key. I think you've articulated what it is you need and what it is you want. So tell him that this is what you need. This is what you want. And this is what you guys are going to do. Hey, Dan. Long-time listener, maybe not first-time caller. Anyway, I'm in my late 20s. I've been married um, and with my husband now for like eight-ish years. You can probably hear my daughter in the background. We have a kid. Um, and sex is good. Relationship is good. But um, he has been on this new career path for the past couple of years and uh, it just kind of happened fluidly. We never had a conversation, but I've basically been financially supporting us for those past three years. Um, he doesn't contribute anything to our family's bottom line, and I do all of that, including help from my parents. He is starting to now get paid for what he's been doing, and it's great, and it's awesome, and he's on the path to starting to contribute them. Now, the trouble is I'm resentful, and he gets to do a lot of fun stuff because of this career, like go backstage to at festivals, hang out with major celebrities, go out to dinner for $500 meals while I'm on a strict budget because we have no money and I don't get to go out to these things because we can't afford a babysitter or much at all. It comes up a lot uh, that I'm resentful and not sure what to do with that jealousy and resentment that I'm feeling. Do I just need to see a therapist? 
I don't want to leave him. That's not the problem here. It's my feelings about the situation. What would you do? What advice do you have for me? I just need a little perspective. Your husband is just now beginning to get paid for whatever it is, his dream job, whatever the fuck it is that brings him into the orbit of celebrities and gets him invited to $500 dinners. He's at the start of that. After years of you having to support him, his career is just beginning to take off. So I think what you say to your husband is, I'm so happy for you. I'm so proud of you. I'm so glad. I want a taste of that too. When the time comes, you need to tell yourself it will not always be thus. You will not always be broke. If his career, particularly if he has the kind of job that's bringing him to the orbit of major celebrities, takes off, the money is coming. And a time will come when you can afford the babysitter and you can tag along as the plus one to these glamorous events, to these glamorous meals. And maybe if you look around right now, you have a friend you could call in and you could say, look, we can't afford a babysitter, but I need to get out of the house and he's going to this thing and I can tag along, but we need some help and you can maybe do a babysitting trade. But if you have no friends, which might be a problem that you might want to address, if you actually have no friends, you can call on in an emergency to do a little babysitting for your sanity. Just tell yourself, You need to look at each other and assure each other that it will not always be thus. You will not always be stuck at home, that the time is coming and coming soon when he is established enough in his new career where you will be able to afford a babysitter and you will get to taste some of these $500 meals and you will get to hang out at some of these festivals and go backstage with him and get a little payback, get a little reward, get a taste of this glamour and whatever the fuck they eat when they have $500 meals because you deserve it. You were there and you were supporting him when you guys were scraping by. And now that it's t- clicking for him, needs to click for you too. You need a taste, as the mobsters might say, and you deserve it. Hey, Dan. I'm just calling in response to the caller on episode 569, uh, the dad that had his daughter actually find some dick pics on his phone. Just wanted to throw it out there. There's actually a couple of really great free apps uh, that allow you to kind of lock up pictures that are not appropriate for kids or that you want to keep private on your phone. One that is really great is called Photo Vault, and it's just an extra layer of password protection so that somebody can't accidentally stumble into photos that you don't want them to. Hi, I'm calling in response to episode 569 with the girl with the asshole boyfriend who raped her in the middle of the night. As a survivor myself, Dan pretty much hit it on the head, DTMFA, but there's actually a name for this when your body knows more than you do. It's called dyspareunia, and if you are having pain during intercourse or sometimes your, your body knows before you do that there's something wrong. So if your body is telling you to get the fuck away from this asshole, then it probably knows what it's doing. Hi, Dan. I'm calling to the lady that was calling about hickeys. And I just wanted to point out, yes, there's a ton of people that enjoy getting hickeys. And I'm definitely part of that community. Turns me on, gets me wet. I absolutely love it. But I also wanted to point out that the adult population is probably a lot better and a little more motivated to be covering it up with makeup. Whereas high school kids either don't know how or don't care, like you said. Um, I know if I have a long work week, I'm definitely covering it up, you know, before I go to work. And if I'm off that week, then I just let it ride. 
And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. Hump, my little porn festival, is in Denver this weekend. Then it heads to Spokane, Brooklyn, Minneapolis, Burlington, Portland, Maine, Missoula, and New Orleans. For info on tickets, go to humpfilmfest.com. And tickets are on sale for Hump Film Fest, the new Hump Film Fest in Seattle and Portland. Also for sale at humpfilmfest.com. I want to thank everybody who came out to the Sold Out Live show in San Francisco last week. And I want to let everybody in Minneapolis, Minnesota, Madison, Wisconsin, and Royal Oak near Detroit, Michigan, know that I am coming to your town October 6th, Minneapolis, October 7th, Madison, Wisconsin, October 8th, Royal Oak, Michigan, Savage Love Live. For tickets to those shows, you can get links at facebook.com slash Savage. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Eli J. Finkel on Twitter at Eli J. Finkel. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech-savvy at-risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week with another installment of Savage Lovecast. 